The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. God's people said, amen. Well, it should be imprinted in your Bible. It should be seared in your conscience. It should be bookmarked at least by now. But if you'll turn with me to the book of Hebrews this morning, uh, there should be a lot of blood, sweat, and tears or snot, whatever you do to mark your page that you bring to it. Some of you all do all sorts of things we don't know about. But Hebrews 9.15 this morning, we are preaching one verse, one verse. Uh, We got 14 last week. We're going to finish off several more next week. But I want you to know one verse today. And so why one verse? Before you stand and we read it together, because this is a transition in the book that is going to go from chapter 9, verse 15, till pretty much the end of chapter 11. Felt it important to really emphasize this one verse, four points, one verse that we will go through because this is what you're going to be unpacking for the next several weeks. We will end, just to put this in perspective, we plan to end this next chunk of Hebrews on late October of this year. Sounds quick, doesn't it? But when you think that 4th of July was three weeks ago tomorrow, you know how quickly time seems to go, doesn't it? So it will be here before we know it. One last housekeeping note. Some of you have asked, when you get to Hebrews 11 and you get all those names, are we going to go through them individually like we did the disciples when you preach through the book of Mark? I'm not going to be around that long. Uh, I, will, I hope to live that long, but that would take a long time. We're going to group them together, but it's all based on this one verse today. So if you're able this morning, will you stand as we read a couple verses before, but mainly focusing on Hebrews 9:15 this morning. We are in our series, if you're visiting with us, we've been in it for several months now since the start of the year. Greater than is the title. We fill it in with a blank each week, any blood. Christ is greater than any blood. And that is where we will be today. Will you start with me in verse 13, and we will read down and focus on verse 15. Hear God's word this morning. For this, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, verse 15. He, that is Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. As always, this is Hebrews. That is a mouthful, but I will hopefully be able to break this down by the Lord's grace this morning as we do. Will you join me in prayer one verse today? If you want to commit this to memory, you, can, you would be well to do, do well to do so because this verse speaks volumes of what Christ has done for us. We pray with me this morning as we look at the power of Christ's blood in verses, verse 15. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this reminder of what you have called us to do. Thank you for the reminder of what you have done for us in Christ. Father, our, our job has not changed with anything in this book or anything in life. It is to make much of you, to make disciples, to share the gospel, to love you, to love others, to always be amongst your people as often as we can. 
Father, all these things and more, we pray that you give us wisdom. Father, may we not literally fall asleep on this verse. May we exalt this verse in line with all scripture to remind ourselves the blood of Christ and the immense amazingness that came from that. Father, we pray all these things today in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Well, you are, you do have chapter 9, verse 15. And guys, if you did not know this, and uh, you can be seated, uh, if, you, if you did not know this already, Christianity is really a bloody religion. Uh, there's a river of blood that you could say flows from its pages. From the very beginning, Adam sinned and God killed for himself an animal and covered him. And in that divine act, blood was shed. Why? Well, look at Hebrews 9.22. Do you have that? I'm going to repeat this phrase a lot. Look at Hebrews 9.22. We'll be here next week. Why were all these things happening? Why was so much blood being shed? Because it says without the end of verse 22, without the shedding of blood, the old King James says there's no remission for sins, or the ESV says there's no forgiveness of sins. But you go down, and you can go back to verse 15. You go to Cain and Abel. They worship God through their sacrifice. And you remember this, don't you? Cain brought a bloodless sacrifice. He brought the produce of the field and of his hands, and God rejected it. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission of sins. And then Abel brought a blood sacrifice, and God accepted it. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there is what? There's no remission of sin. A death angel comes to Egypt to strike down the firstborn of every child in Egypt. And Moses was told to put blood over the lintels uh, of the doors. And as he did that, why did he do that? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sin. Moses led Israel to Mount Sinai to, to the Ten Commandments and all those things. And they built a priesthood. And even on that day, thousands of, of animals, bulls, goats, and lambs were sacrificed. Why? You know what I'm going to say, don't you? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission of sin. There is a river of blood that throws, flows through the pages of Holy Scripture. And as it does, it all prepares for the one perfect sacrifice that would come in Jesus Christ. Why? Can you say it with me? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission of sins. There is nothing more precious. There is nothing more powerful than the blood of Jesus Christ. Luther said it this way, and you can, you can debate him on this, but Luther, that great reformer, said, one drop of Christ's blood is worth more than heaven and earth. You get the picture. The Bible speaks of it everywhere. Romans 3.25, and if you want to put the scripture up, Romans 3.25 says that there's propitiation in his blood. Ephesians, or Romans 5.9, and Brian read this, says that we are justified by his blood. Ephesians 1.7 says we have the forgiveness of sins and redemption through his blood. Ephesians 2.13, we've brought near by the what of Christ? The blood of Christ. Hebrews 10.14, the blood of Christ will cleanse your conscience. Hebrews 10.19, we enter the holy place by the blood of Christ. Hebrews 13.12, that he might sanctify his people through his what? Blood. 1 Peter 1.2, we are sprinkled with blood. 1 John 1.7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And in Revelation 5, Jesus released us from our sins by his blood. The world thinks we're nutty already, but if you were to share that at most people and they cut that little section out and put that on TikTok or YouTube or play that audio clip of that little section in the intro I just read, they would think it's even more weird. But the fact of the matter is, what can wash away my blood or away my sin? Woo! 
Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that is our big idea today. Every aspect of salvation is accomplished by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what that means is, is that no Christian owns his own life. We are under new management because we are bought with his blood. So friends, today Spurgeon said, morality may keep you out of jail, but it takes the blood of Christ to keep you out of hell. Everything that we have in our lives goes back to what Christ did for us. The law says get to work. The gospel says it is finished because the blood of Christ speaks a better word to us today. And any gospel that diminishes the atonement through the blood of Christ diminishes the fact that only Christ's blood can save us. So from Hebrews 9.15, I want to pull out four little phrases, and I want to warn you. Even as I read through 9.15, you probably were looking at your Bible saying, whoa, but that phrase is here on my Bible, and that phrase is here in my Bible. I'm using the ESV, so if you're following along and you don't have the ESV, that's fine. But I want you to know I'm taking them in order as it's presented there. So if you have a King James, New American Standard, whatever, it's going to look a little different. But the phrases are all the same, just in a different order. So this morning, four great truths about the power of the blood of Christ. Four great truths about the power of the blood of Christ. And so we learn from these verses that only Christ can save us. And the first thing about the power of the blood of Christ I want you to see is that it is a reconciling power. A reconciling power power. You see that there in that first phrase. It says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Verse 15 starts off with a therefore. And if you're a good Bible, I went to seminary just to learn this, right? What's the therefore, therefore? It's therefore because it's wrapping up verses 1 through 14. And for this reason, it, it talks about in verse 14 that he has now come to be the mediator of a new covenant. That the superiority and the power of Christ is found in his blood alone, not in animals or bulls or goats or whatever. And that is a central theme. He's a mediator of a new covenant. Jesus is our go-between. He's our advocate. He is our, our, our mediator between us and God. And as he's lifted up on that cross, he now serves as the one that represents us to God. And as a mediator, he stands between two parties who couldn't be more different. God being completely holy and us being not holy. Brother Dave mentioned before, as we were just kind of hanging out before Sunday school, that he had a friend that said, well, the Bible, I think I got the essence of this. The Bible says that, that I'm not really that good. Uh, I think it should make me gooder. Is, uh, that might be the better way to say it. Well, friends, the Bible doesn't make you sound good, does it? You have sinned. You have fallen short of the glory of God, and you've broken that first covenant. Therefore, we needed a new one. And this is what Jesus did. He brought us together. He stands between us. He stood between holy God and holy man, and he brought us together on that cross. But as our mediator, I want to give you just some sub-points here about what it means, the power of the blood and the mediation of Christ, being our go-between, what it means. Because you need to know this. This didn't just happen out of thin air. Well, the first thing I want you to know about the mediation of Christ, because he, you know what a mediator is, right? When two parties are at odds, I... I I tried not to put sports analogies in here. I'm sorry. Here comes number one. You can start counting them. Back when all the baseball players were crying, they didn't make enough money, and the owners didn't want to give them their money, they had a mediator. And eventually we got a call that says, let's play ball, because they both agreed on terms. A mediator is a go-between. It's, it's a settling of parties in the interest of both parties. Well, where did this mediation, this new covenant come from? First off, I want you to see it was started by God himself. This new mediation started by God the Father specifically. You remember back in Hebrews 8, 8 through 11, I won't read it to you, but you can go back there and look where it talks about, Behold, the days are coming 
where he says, I'm making a covenant not like I made with my fathers, but one that I show them and, and they will have their laws in my mind. Excuse me. I'll put my laws into their minds and write their, them on their hearts and I will be their God. God the Father started this covenant in eternity past. The cross was not an accident or a forethought. God didn't uh, go to plan B when Adam and Eve sinned. The plan was always to send Christ. And Jesus, eternally God, was born as a man to be the God-man and stand between us. And God, in all the Trinitarian things that make your mind hurt, chose the Son, being co-equal with him, to be the one to go on our behalf. There is a covenant made, and it started with God, and that's always been part of his plan. God chose us in eternity past, not because of us, but in spite of us. And he did that when he made the covenant to send forth his Son. The second thing you need to know about the new covenant in Christ and his blood is that it is uncompromising in its terms. Uncompromising in its terms. In human negotiations, a mediator works out a compromise for both parties. What's in your best interest? How can we agree on this? You give a little of this, you give a little of that, and you know what? Get over it. We're going to meet in the middle and you both will be happy. But that's not exactly how it worked. Because in our eyes, we had nothing to give God. God is completely holy. We had nothing to offer him except filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. Because the holiness of God can never be compromised. Church, if we ever compromise who God is, we seek not to be a church. We seek to be a country club. Be careful of that. Brother Leo and I were talking before service about some of the ways that our beliefs as Baptists have changed over the years. And it got to some of the middle liberal days in our denomination where we sacrificed what we believe to be acceptable to the culture. And in doing that, we lost who God was. And imagine that. Churches run amok with all sorts of crazy things. But when Jesus came, it was uncompromising in its terms. What terms? That you could only go through him. That the only way to God was through Christ. That the only way to be saved was to repent and trust in him alone. Christ is our mediator. We can't cut a deal with him. We can't negotiate with him and say, hey, I'm not really that bad, God. Oh, yes, you are. But my son is even better. He's greater than all. This new covenant also was equitable or fair to all sides. Number three, it was equitable or fair to all sides. And you'll see that on the screen. How does that make sense? I thought he was uncompromising. Well, this is why Jesus, who's fully God, became a man. As God, he represents God to man. And as a man, he represents man to God. And by his incarnation, Christ was impartial to both sides. God reconciled the holiness of God with the unholiness of man in himself. And in doing that, God was being fair. You know, so many people, I put this on Facebook the other day, so many people say, uh, if God would be fair to me, then my life would be a whole lot better. Oh, really? If God were fair to you, you would get the book thrown at you right away. God, you can tell yourself God's not fair. You can thank him that he is not fair. If God was fair, you would be condemned. The fact that a holy, just, all-powerful, almighty, merciful, everything loving God loves you is nothing short of astonishing. If God were fair, you would already be up in You'd be not up. You'd be down in hell. But because God was equitable to both sides, he sent forth his son that we might have a chance only through his son to repent and believe the gospel of his son. The other part about this new mediation that has happened is that it was and will continue to be exclusive in its authority. 
It's number four, exclusive in its authority. What we mean by that is all contact between God and man is now carried out through a mediator. You don't have to go to a special school to pray to God. You go to the special God-man, Jesus Christ. There's no other way that God comes to man except through Jesus Christ. And there's no other way man comes to God and have his case represented before God except Jesus Christ. I mean, guys, I'm not a smart person, but Jesus is really about the answer to everything, isn't he? Matthew 11:27. Jesus said, All things have been handed to me over by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal. Hey, I got a new list for you because I say it about every week. You can't go through Brigham Young. You can't go through Allah. You can't go through Muhammad. And you can't go through, you can't go through Mary Eddie Baker. I got a new list for you because the last seven years I've said the same list over and over. The point is, is no one can come to the Father except through the Son because the Son is exclusive in his authority. He is the reigning king, the only one. And because of what he's done, we now have a new relationship with him. This mediation of Christ was also, number five, executed at great cost. You know that, don't you? It was executed at great cost. The terms of the mediation are spelled out this way, that the Son of God had to die on a cross for us. Notice what it says, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Christ died for our sins. Romans 4, 25, he was delivered up for our transgressions. Galatians 1, 4, he gave himself for our sins. Matthew 20, 28, he gave himself as a ransom for many. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus is not the type of king that conquers by shedding the blood of his enemies. He is the king that conquers by shedding his own blood for his enemies. And that's what he did for us. The cross now means you don't have to hide from a perfectly holy God because all your sins are covered and executed at great cost in Christ. What an amazing God we serve. And lastly, and I love this, because of what Christ did on the cross and by his blood, everything he did was successful in its results. Successful. Can you ever imagine that? Um, we, we let our kids play a game at home after we do certain things. They get four minutes, which in, in a kid's mind, four minutes is like four hours, right? So just don't tell them it's not a long time. But we love to play a, a game called Angry Birds. You ever played that game before? Uh, it's about birds who you shoot them in a slingshot and they try and knock down the towers of the pigs. It's, it's a quite a therapeutic game at times in life. But let me tell you, there are times that we play that game and we think we've got those pigs cornered and we got the right angles with the slingshots and the right pigs that you shoot at them. It's really a funny thing to see. And then one pig will bounce off the tower and just hit it. And the pigs just laugh at you like you didn't knock us down. But I was going to be successful. I had all the pigs lined up. I had all the things ready to go. And the tower still didn't fall. Oh, how our lives are not as successful as we think they are, aren't they? But with Christ, all he ever does is successful. And when he died on that cross, no matter what stood before him, it all came crumbling down, including that great sheet, that great robe, that great whatever that separated the Holy of Holies was ripped in half. When Christ died for you, he was completely successful. And that is exactly because of his blood and only because of his blood. What power there is in the blood of Christ. Amen. He was the mediator of the new covenant and he has reconciling power. That is number one. Number one. The blood of Christ is greater because reconciling. I want you to see number two. The power of Christ is also retroactive. 
I didn't say reactive. I didn't say nuclear active. I said retroactive power. God has retroactive power. Look at that next phrase there. This is ESV again. He says he's therefore a mediator of the new covenant. He goes on to say, so that those who are called, those who are called, those who are called may receive the promised inheritance. And if you skip down to the last, it says their transgressions committed under the first covenant. So I'm focusing on two phrases here. They are called and the transgressions under the first covenant. Well, what was the first covenant? The first covenant was the Mosaic law, the law that Moses gave them on Mount Sinai. But they were called. Those people were called. The only way a person is ever saved is if God calls their name. Some of you struggle with this great truth of Scripture. If God died and gave his life, why do not? Why does not everyone believe in Jesus? I mean, it's so easy. It's so easy. You believe in Jesus. You turn from your sin, and it's all taken care of. How could you not? How did they miss that? I want to remind you this morning that God is the author of salvation. Jonah 2.9 says that salvation is of the Lord. God has been sovereignly calling people out for centuries. And these blood sacrifices were only a covering, a temporary covering for a greater truth they needed to understand. They're not saved by the goats and the bulls. They are saved by the blood of Christ. So let me summarize it in this way. When Jesus went to the cross, when he died on that cross, instantly... And immediately, the merits, the, the, the once-for-all sacrifice were applied to all those old people in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, who believed and, believed and trusted him by faith. How were the Old Testament saints saved? The same way you were saved today, by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, by his glory alone, as mentioned in, oh yeah, the Bible alone. Don't you love that? Can you imagine not knowing all the details about Jesus and just seeing pictures and parts. You knew something great was coming, but you didn't know where it was coming from. You knew there was a Messiah coming. You didn't know the dates or names or whatever. But it's as if God reached back to the Garden of Eden through centuries to Christ's death, who by faith committed their lives to him. But what does it mean to be called? I mean, does God pick up his iPhone 13? And and this is not an iPhone 13, by the way. It's out of my league. And he calls him and says, hey, you want to be in heaven? Come on down. He calls your number. Maybe those are the spam calls you're missing. If you're not a Christian, you're missing God calling you. No. When we say the word called in Scripture, what we are saying and what we are demonstrating is that there are two types of calls. And you see that up on the screen. There is a general call of Scripture. And by call, what we mean is, is that God has made himself known. God has made himself known by the preaching of the word. If you're not a Christian here today, God is in an essence calling you. He's giving you his word. He's giving you his message. But what are you going to do with that? Well, that's great. What are you going to do with that? We'll get there in a minute. But are all called? Is God called out everyone to believe in him and go to heaven? No, we're not universalists. We don't believe that. uh, We don't believe as the old uh, kumbaya, you know, when we all get to heaven. Not everyone's going to heaven, guys. Only those who believe in Christ. So what's it mean? The general call of scripture and the word here used in Hebrews 9.15 means that God before Jesus came on the scene, made known his word, made known his glory through revelation, made known it through nature. There's a general call, general revelation here, where all those who are under the word and the gospel heard it, but not everyone responds to the gospel. You ever notice that before? 
Some of you old timers, maybe not so much old timers. When Billy Graham preached, did everyone in their seats go forward and pray to receive Jesus Christ? No. Seemed like it at times. Because, boy, that just as I am played for about 20 minutes as everyone came from the highest heavens down. And I praise God for that. But there's an effectual call. Because Matthew 22:14 14 says that many are called, Jesus said, but what? Few are chosen. Oh, Darren, are you getting in some weird reform Calvinistic stuff? No. I'm just telling you straight what the word says. The word called here means what it means. Guys, there is a general call, but there is also an effectual call. There is a supernatural call of God where when everyone else hears the word, that God, by his grace, calls out or pulls out some to be his. I mean, have you ever wondered that before? You ever just sat down with a friend before and just shared the gospel with them? And they just look at you like, huh? I don't care. But you go to somebody else and you share the gospel with them and it's like immediately their heart just opens up. It's like, where has this been my whole life? Why has no one told me about this? That's the difference between a general call and an effectual call. We believe, as the scripture says, that the spirit of God supernaturally calls people out. And when that call is extended, there is a divine exercise by God to make people his own. We call them the elect, the called out ones. Do you know what the church literally is in the Greek? The called out ones, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the elected ones. So, pastor, what about this? What about seeker-sensitive churches? Well, guys, God is the great seeker, and if we're not seeking after him, then we don't have much to seek about. Well, what about those people? As Jesus died on the cross, did he die for people who were in hell already? I mean, what if they trusted in him a little bit? No, I don't think that's what it's saying here. When you're in hell, there is no escape. What he is saying is, is that those who sinned under the first covenant, those who were called out, are saved by the same way you are, by faith in Christ, by the call of God, by the Spirit, and believing in God alone. That's it. That's the same way. That's what he's saying. And as we get to Hebrews 11, and we get to these names of faith, and we call it the Hall of Fame, it's really just people who trusted by faith in Jesus, because they were not good people, some of them. Abraham lied. Moses got angry. David, well, I don't need to tell you what he did. Look, Christ died for the called out ones of the Old Testament who had already put their faith in him, and that would extend to the New Testament. Christ died for all those who would trust in him. Does God choose some of those who will be saved? Yes, he will. That's not Calvinism. That's not Arminianism. That is straight-up Bible. Jesus himself said, "Few are, many are chosen, but how many are saved? A few. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, it ought to... Just up your thankfulness game each day of the week, guys. The fact that God loved you and chose you out of this world instead of someone else. Man, what a God we serve. What an amazing God we serve. Number three, the power of Christ is reconciling. It is retroactive in its power. And I want you to see these shorter points here. Number three, it is a retaining or a redeeming power. Excuse me, a redeeming power. You notice that, and I'm skipping around verse 15 here. What does this do for a person? This does for a person exactly what it says. It redeems. Since a death has occurred that redeems from their transgressions. What does Christ's death do for you? It redeems you. It saves you. It reconciles you. It ransoms you. Literally, that word redeem means to loose or to set free. It means to set free from a prison or slavery. You know, I've never been to a jail before except in seminary and a couple hospital visits. But I'm told by guards that if you were to do this... Around prisoners, they all jump up really quick.
power of Christ do for you? It redeemed you. It saved you. It freed you. It set you free from tyranny. Sin was your master. Satan was your warden. But now when Jesus invaded the world, he took the greatest rescue mission ever. He who has the Son has life. And if the Son sets you free, you shall be free. What? Indeed. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, he rescued us from the domain of the dominion of darkness, and we have redemption from our sins. Amy, if you want to put up the next little phrase there, that would be great. Jesus promises you two things, guys. And I've mentioned this before. He promises you, first off, an eternal salvation in which you cling to and you hope to and you, you do. But he also promises you, secondly, a cross of which you are to die. When you are redeemed in Christ, you are free from your sin. You have an eternal salvation, but now he puts the weight on your back by his grace to carry, to take up your cross daily and follow him. Daily. Not when it's convenient. Not when you feel like it. Not when you think it's your best interest. But every day. Every day we have to make that decision to follow him. Would you pray this week, God, by your grace, you have redeemed me. You have set me free. Lord, my life is not my own, but because of what your son has done for me, I trust that you're going to be with me, even when times that I fail to represent you well. Lord, give me strength. But I want you to know it's all because of the redeeming power of Christ's blood that you have an eternal hope. And what a great thing that is. Number four, we'll close with this. He not only has a He not only has a retaining power, a retroactive power in his blood, a redeeming power, but finally he has a retaining power, a retaining power. You notice that phrase there, if you will, where it says that they may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Verse 15, the promised eternal inheritance. All that God purchased in Christ for his people have an inheritance. It is secure, wrath. Moth and rust cannot destroy because Christ holds it forever. This building may burn. Your inheritance may go away. Your 401, don't look. If you have a 401k right now, don't look at it. You'll drive yourself mad. But I'll tell you this. What Christ has secured for you, no market can change. No law can change. No politician can vote or amend out. It is secure in Christ. We have a promised and eternal inheritance. Well, pastor, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have a bigger house than you. Well, praise the Lord. However that works out, I don't care. Just give me Jesus. I don't care what house I get. If I have Christ, I have enough. And what he tells these Hebrews is, is that because of what Christ has done in the new mediation, because of the retroactiveness that's been applied, because of the redeeming that he's done, everything Jesus did will be their prize and inheritance for all eternity. And once that is applied, it means it's forever. You know, there are some good pastors who like to dance around that. They say, well, how, you know, hell can't be forever, can it? I mean, I mean, God's not unloving. He's just going to smoke them out. He's going to annihilate them someday. And I mean, surely a person can lose their salvation, right? Because no, that's, I don't know what God you're believing in, sir, but that's not the God that I see. The God I see says this is an eternal inheritance, a promise. That means that we are redeemed forever. We are reconciled forever. What powerful blood we have in the blood of Christ. It can never once be applied and fail to save forever. It is something of the New Testament. Because if Christ's blood could be applied once and you could lose your salvation, then we're right back in the Old Testament days all over again. And we're not. All sins, past, present, and future. 
Look, I don't, I believe Adam and Eve truly eventually got it and they'll be in heaven with us someday. Do I have a chapter and verse for that? No, I don't. But I believe when he died on that cross, he reached all the way back to the Garden of Eden and then for eternities to come, we'll save all that are his until he returns. And what a death. It is proactive. It is retroactive. God reached back to save the Old Testament saints as he reached forward and continues to reach forward to save all those who call upon him until he returns. There is a fountain filled with blood, the old hymn says, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunge beneath that flood will never will lose, excuse me, all their guilty stains. Brian had a lot of choices of good songs to pick. And brother, you did well this day, but we've got to sing that one soon because we know that one well. There's nothing more powerful than the blood of Christ. Amy, if you'll put up the last little bit. What does that mean for you now? That means that every decision in your life and in this church is now a decision of lordship. The other brother Dave, I forget we have multiple Dave's, multiple Linda's here. We have multiple, a lot of names. The other brother Dave, my Adrian Rogers loving Dave, this one's for you. Adrian Rogers, the great speaker of pastors past, said this, quote, Christianity is not a cafeteria line where you'll say, I'll have a little salvation, but no lordship right now. In other words, you can't go to Jesus and say, give me all the forgiveness in my life, but I don't want you to be in charge of my life. This is not Golden Crowl. Is that still open after the pandemic? I don't even know what's open anymore. Jesus is not a Golden Crowl where you can go put your favorites on your plate, go eat it up, and forget all the good stuff. That's what we do at the men's dinner, by the way. Every, every month we do that. But God in his grace not only forgives and accepts you, he places you under new management. You are no longer your own. He has purchased us. He gets to call the shots. He has us under new management. We are not on the basis of our own whims. We do our whole lives for him because he gave his whole life for us. Church, it's really not that complicated, is it? Life is all about honoring Christ in every decision that you make. May I say a word for our church as we close? As we go through with land decisions, and there's no, no updates there, with school stuff that may inconvenience us for a short time as we get used to each other, or whatever else is coming, may we remember that we're not fighting each other. The war has already been settled. The battle has been won. We are to go out and share the gospel wherever we are. We are on the same team. But we do it under new management, because Christ is now our King and now our Lord. Guys, we love you so much. I pray you remember today the power of the blood of Christ. It is a bloody religion, but without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Will you pray with me this morning as we close? Fathers, we come to you. We are grateful for the reconciling, redeeming, retaining, and retroactive power that is found in the blood of Christ. Father, as Jesus walked along and skinned his knee, that didn't save us. As he shed his uh, hurt his hand, maybe doing carpentry stuff with his dad if such a thing happened before his dad passed away. That didn't save us. Though perfect through his whole life and blood perfect for sure, it was on that cross in that moment of time, Father, so many years ago, where your hand poured out all the wrath and judgment that was due upon our heads and our your son, our Savior, became the propitiation. He appeased your wrath, yeah, Father. He soaked it in, as it were, and took it all upon himself. The judgment that should have fallen upon us fell wholly, 100% on him. And Father, it was through that shedding of that blood on that day in your sovereign plan that we look back on and say, thank you, Lord. 
Your blood not only is retroactive, but it's proactive for all those who've been called out generally, but more specifically, effectually in your name. Father, we love you. We pray for this church. There's lots of things we can talk about. May it never be just rote, routine, or just another thing we do to talk about Jesus. May we always sing, as we always do, that it is in Christ alone that these things happen. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you once again for the cross, the burial, the death, the resurrection.